Chapter Four of the Mystery of the Hidden Room. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Hidden Room by Marion Harvey. Chapter Four, The Inquest. When I awoke, the sun was pouring into the room, and my watch pointed to eleven o'clock. After hours of pacing the floor in utter anguish of spirit while the specter of murder stalked hand in hand with innocence and love, outraged nature had asserted herself, and I had found respite in oblivion. But now the weary round of thoughts must be taken up again, and it was with a sigh of relief that I obeyed the summons to present myself in the study where the coroner was holding the inquest. The body had been removed, and in the chair where it had so lately rested reposed the coroner with his papers spread out on the table before him. I noticed that he had taken the chair from the head of the table and had placed it around the corner on the right side, facing the direction of the door instead of the safe. In the corner opposite the door sat the younger of the two detectives who had accompanied the sergeant to the house the night before. Beside him was Orton, looking pale and dispirited, while huddled in the adjacent corner like a herd of frightened cattle stood the servants, their eyes fastened upon the coroner, watching his every movement as if in terror lest they be accused of having murdered their master. Grouped around the table but slightly behind the coroner sat the jury, and I was glad to note that the coroner had had the good sense to pick a fairly respectable set of men to judge the case, from which I argued hopefully that the gray-haired, heavy-set gentleman in charge of the case might possess a modicum of intelligence and a keener brain than the average coroner. Back of the jury stood Dr. Haskins, in conference with a rotund individual, whom I assumed rightly to be the coroner's physician. Beyond the doctors sat the assistant district attorney, surrounded by the very few newspapermen who had gotten wind of the affair and had insisted upon being present. Passing the jury, I seated myself near one of the windows beside a man whom I recalled having seen, but whom I could not at the moment place, and looked around in vain for Ruth. Evidently, Coroner Graves, I obtained this information from the man beside me, intended to spare her as much as possible, for which consideration I thanked him from the bottom of my heart. They must have been awaiting my presence, since I was no sooner seated than the coroner called on Dr. Haskins to give his testimony. The doctor repeated what he had previously told me, that Philip Darwin had been shot through the left lung, that death had resulted from internal hemorrhage, and that the victim had lived at least twenty minutes after the bullet had penetrated his body. Asked if he had examined Mr. Darwin immediately upon his arrival, the doctor replied that he had first attended Mrs. Darwin, and that it must have been ten or fifteen minutes later that he had entered the study. He had found Mr. Darwin lying back in his chair with a smile on his lips, one hand closed over a handkerchief, the other hanging limply over the arm of the chair. From the condition of the body, he must have been dead from twenty to thirty minutes. 
Also there was a small abrasion on the little finger of his left hand, as if a ring had been violently removed. Questioned as to whether he was the family's physician, he said no, that he only knew Mr. Darwin by sight, and had probably been summoned because he was the nearest doctor. This evidence was partially corroborated by the coroner's physician, who added that he had made a post-mortem examination and had extracted the bullet, which had narrowly missed entering the heart. From the nature of the wound it would have been impossible for him to have shot himself, and the absence of all powder stains pointed to murder rather than suicide. Then he continued, with a slightly commiserating look in Dr. Haskins' direction, "'You have heard Dr. Haskins' testimony, Your Honor, that the victim lived twenty minutes after he was shot, and that at the time the doctor examined him he had already been dead from twenty to thirty minutes. This last statement is correct. The post-mortem examination proves conclusively that Mr. Darwin died at midnight, or shortly thereafter. From questions that I have already put to Mr. Orton, I have learned that the shot was fired as the clock finished striking twelve. Therefore, since that was the only shot fired, Mr. Darwin must have died immediately, or, at the best, must have lived only five minutes, for Dr. Haskins was in the study by twelve-thirty. But interrupted Dr. Haskins. The nature of the wound is such that instantaneous death could not have possibly occurred. Please do not volunteer information unless you are being questioned, returned the coroner with some asperity. He turned to his physician. You were saying, doctor? Dr. Haskins shrugged his shoulders at the coroner's words, while his boyish face flushed angrily at the rebuke, and he walked away from the table, but turned to listen as the physician took up the cudgels again by answering the query he had propounded. Dr. Haskins is young in his profession, and this is his first criminal case, hence his natural inference that because in his medical books such a wound should produce such results, therefore it must be so in practice said the coroner's physician with pompous superiority. Now, as a matter of fact, where one man will live an hour, another will survive only a few minutes, depending on the life each has led. Now, Mr. Darwin, I have been told, led a very fast life, which probably accounts for his quick demise. After all, you see, it's a question of fitting your facts to the circumstances of your case and in this instance no other conclusion is possible. I could see that Dr. Haskins was not at all convinced, and I set it down to professional jealousy and his desire not to be outdone by the coroner's physician. I can imagine that that is young in his profession rather than stuck in his gorge. When the physician had seated himself, the coroner took up the bullet and called the detective, to whom he handed it along with another object that had been lying upon the table, whereupon the detective took a step forward and held up the object for our inspection. It was a long-barreled thirty-eight caliber revolver, just the sort of weapon a man would keep in his house for use against burglars, 
since it ensured a fair chance of more accurate marksmanship. "'This revolver, gentlemen,' said the detective, speaking to the jury, "'was found on the floor beside the chair in which the victim lay. "'As you can see for yourselves,' here he broke the pistol, "'it is fully loaded with the exception of one chamber, "'which has recently been discharged.' The bullet extracted from Mr. Darwin's body corresponds in every aspect with the bullets remaining in this pistol. Therefore, I have no hesitation in stating that the deceased was killed with this weapon in my hand. He passed the revolver and the bullet to the jury, adding that Mr. Darwin had been standing when he was shot, and that as he had been engaged in writing the moment before, the inference was plain that he had risen to meet the person who killed him. "'What makes you certain he was standing when he was shot?' inquired the coroner. "'The carpet, if you'll notice,' replied the detective, whose name, by the way, was Jones, has a very heavy pile. The marks made by that armchair, as it was pushed back from the table, were apparent to me when I examined the carpet around it. Now Mr. Darwin had been writing, for we found a half-finished word on the paper before him, and must therefore have been seated in the chair. Hence the only person who could have produced those marks in the carpet was the victim himself, and they could only have been made if, as I said, he had risen suddenly to meet his murderer, who was evidently known to him, since Mr. Darwin was smiling when he was killed. There was a murmur of admiration for the clever way in which he had deduced his statement, and the man beside me softly clapped his hands as he whispered to himself, "'Admirable! Marvelous! Upon my soul, I could not have built it better had I tried!' The thought came to me that my companion might be a detective also, and that he was delighted with the intelligence displayed by his professional brother but I had no time to nurse idle speculations, for Jones had resumed his seat, and I expected the coroner to make an attempt to discover the ownership of the pistol. To my surprise, he ignored that point and turned his attention to the servants. The butler, who was the first servant called upon, and who was a vigorous old man about sixty years of age, gave his name as George Mason, and stated that he had been in his position for thirty years. I saw the coroner's face clear at this statement, for surely a man who had been the family retainer for so long a time could be relied on not to pervert any knowledge he might possess of the events of the previous night. The coroner should have recalled that, though not given to perverting justice, old family servants have a faculty for forgetting what they would rather not explain. "'I understand that it is your duty to secure the house at night,' began the coroner. "'Yes, sir.' "'What time do you usually lock up?' "'When Mr. Darwin left the house for the evening, sir. Or, if he was away, as he sometimes is, for days together, it would remain locked while he was gone. That is, it was that way before his marriage, sir.' Now I lock up when Mrs. Darwin goes upstairs. What time did you close the house last night? At 9.30, sir. 
you are sure you locked all the doors and windows securely oh yes sir everything except the study for to my surprise mr orton was in there and said he'd lock the windows himself sir why did mr orton's presence in the study surprise you because mr darwin always keeps the study locked sir i have a duplicate key to let the maid in to clean sir and it was my custom in my rounds at night to knock on the door if i got no answer i went in to see that everything was all right sir how long has mr darwin been in the habit of locking his study a good many years sir ten or more for what reason i do not know sir did mr orton explain how he came to be in the study no sir when i found him there i withdrew at once after that what did you do i saw to it that all the servants had left the main wing and closed the door into the servants wing when that door is closed it is impossible to hear what goes on in the main part of the house sir we went to bed and did not know the master was dead until mr orton informed us this morning sir i see this applies to all the servants you can swear to that yes sir to all except the valet and mrs darwin's maid they do not leave the main wing until dismissed for the night who opened up the house this morning the police sir the coroner looked inquiringly at the detective who answered promptly nothing had been tampered with the burglar alarms on the windows were all intact and the front door was double locked when the doctor arrived the coroner turned once more to the butler when did you last see mr darwin alive yesterday about six o'clock sir he was just going out then he was not home for dinner no sir mr orton and mrs darwin dined alone sir for even mr lee was away who is mr lee mr darwin's nephew sir he has lived here ever since he was a lad sir coroner graves pondered a moment then asked abruptly have you ever noticed any signs of ill-feeling between your master and mistress the answer came without a moment's hesitation no sir and even if i did it was not my place begging your pardon sir to pry into the affairs of my betters the jury smiled but the coroner frowned as he told mason that he was through questioning him for he was evidently a stickler in regard to upholding the dignity of the law as embodied in his own proper person of course the examination of the other servants was a mere formality none of them knew anything of the tragedy and they were disposed of in a group with the exception of the valet and ruth's maid the former being questioned stated that his master had given him the evening that he had left the house at six and had not returned until eight this morning where had he been at midnight why at the high fling on fourteenth street dancing with his girl the coroner summoned a policeman and sent him out to verify this statement 
then called ruth's maid who supplied him with the first bit of tangible evidence against her mistress how long have you been in your present position annie he asked glancing at the sheet he held in his hand five months sir answered annie with a grin and curtsy she was quite a pretty girl and it was evident that she was bursting to tell all she knew so the coroner asked her to relate everything that had happened the night before admonishing her to be careful not to forget a single detail she tossed her head as if i'm like to forget sir with it all ending in murder sir she spoke the word in a thrilling whisper enjoying to the full her connection with so sensational an affair last night sir about ten thirty as i was getting my mistress ready for bed came a knock at the door and who should it be but mr orton saying that the master wished to see my mistress in the study quick as a wink she was after him down the stairs and i hadn't hardly had time to fix the bed before she was back again be more definite interrupted the coroner was she gone five minutes nearly ten sir came the ready answer were you making the bed that it took you ten minutes to fix it inquired the coroner sharply the girl hung her head no sir i went out in the hall to see if i could hear anything but there was no sound and when i saw my mistress coming up the stairs i ran back in the room and noticed the clock said about twenty to eleven sir be careful how you give false impressions my girl remember that we always learn the truth said the coroner severely the girl was quite abashed and just a little frightened it wasn't any harm sir she murmured and i didn't hear anything so i thought it didn't have to be told go on with your story shortly yes sir my mistress came back looking very excited and sat down at her desk she wrote something on a paper and put it in a white envelope then she told me to give it to her chauffeur and to tell him to go for mr davies and bring him back as fast as possible she said i needn't come back to her so i did what she told me and then went to bed i don't know how long i'd been asleep when mr orton woke me and told me my mistress was ill i flung on some clothes and followed him to her room where the doctor told me to stay the rest of the night i didn't know the master was dead until i went to get my breakfast the butler told me and that is all i know sir you have no idea what was in the note no sir it was sealed the chauffeur was called next and testified that what the maid had related with regard to him was correct he had taken the note to my house and delivered it to my man when i had entered the machine he had driven me to the darwin home and left me at the front steps did the maid give you mr davies address asked an inquisitive juror no sir i was mrs darwin's chauffeur before her marriage and had often driven mr davies home sir then mr davies was acquainted with mrs darwin before her marriage 
this from another juror. Yes, sir. Did you not think it odd that your mistress should send for Mr. Davies at that time of night? inquired the coroner. I didn't think about it one way or t'other. I'm paid to obey orders, sir. There was nothing more to be obtained from him, and, as by this time it had grown late, a short recess was called for luncheon. I had hoped to see Ruth, but I was disappointed, for she kept her room, and so, not caring to join the others in the dining-room, I had Mason bring me a bite in the room adjoining the study. When the inquest was reopened, I once more took a chair near a window, but above the table instead of below it, where I could watch more closely the witnesses as they were called. To my surprise, my companion of the morning again chose a seat beside me. Then the coroner rapped for order and inquired if Gregory had returned. "'Yes, sir,' answered the policeman promptly, coming forward and saluting. "'The valet's alibi is okay, sir. The music-hall attendant remembers speaking to him at midnight, and his girl corroborated his testimony.' "'Very well. That effectually disposes of the servants,' remarked the coroner. "'Now for the more important witnesses.' I was hoping that he would call me first, but the name that fell from his lips was that of Claude Orton, private secretary and creature of the murdered man. End of chapter 4